0: Welcome to Self-Compassionate Professor, a career wellness podcast for mid-career and recovering academics who want more. More meaning, balance, rest, joy, and more clarity. Our motto here is no regrets. So glad you're here. Thanks so much for being here. You are listening to episode 45 of Self-Compassionate Professor, and I'm Danielle Delamar. I'm glad you're here. My family is upstairs. You know, we're having that really close-knit, tight (laughs) family life that we have now during the pandemic, and so if you hear them talking while uh, while I'm talking right now, um... I don't know, just enjoy their sounds, as of course I am. Uh, Okay, so what I wanted to do is say, hello, this is episode 45, and incidentally, my guest, who I'll be talking to today, Dr. Carrie Ann Rockamore, retired at the age of 45. What? Yes, she's still in her 40s, and she's retired. She was a tenured professor, And she left that, started a successful faculty development organization. You may know it. It's the National Center for Faculty Development and Diversity. Many, many, many universities subscribe to the content that this organization puts out. So you're going to hear her story, how she went from, you know, tenured track tenured professor to successful entrepreneur and it's um it's an episode that is full of wisdom i even struggled to figure out what quote of hers because there were so many wise things that she said I struggled to figure out what quote to uh, Foreground in the promotion of this episode because I always find a quote to Foreground, and I seriously had a hard time finding one because there were just so many to choose from. So everyone, welcome Dr. Carrie-Anne Rockamore. Her episode starts now. Hello. Today, I am so excited to be talking to Dr. Carrie-Anne Rockamore founder of the National Center for Faculty Development and Diversity, former professor of sociology, and recently retired. <laughs> and Carrie Ann, how are you doing? I'm great, thank you. It's good to be here. <laughs> it's so good to have you. I, we were just talking before the recording, and I had asked you about what it was like to be retired because you retired, what, like in your 40s or something? Yes, yes, So that's awesome. So you had said to me, you know, it's kind of awesome. And I try not to say that too much, because I don't (laughs) want to make people feel bad. (laughs) So (laughs) I want to ask you what's awesome about it. And then I want to talk to you about the other stuff we were talking about, about people's beliefs about what retirement actually means. So first, tell me how it's going. And why is it so awesome?
1: Well, I retired in 2017, so it's been three years. Um, and wh- I guess what's awesome about it is just imagine that um, you can focus your time and energy on the things that you love, that you can create a, a schedule for your life where you are just working in your zone of genius um, for as many hours a day as possible. And all of the things that you had to deal with, had to put up with, et cetera, et cetera, as part of your job um, no longer exist because you would not choose them to exist. So um, the fact that uh, I get to structure my life in a way that is optimal for me, um, it's pretty pretty delicious, (laughs) I can't lie. It took a transition, um, sure. But uh, once on the other side of that transition, uh, it's been really
0: even better than I expected. Okay, so I guess I have a couple questions about that. Then, so Mm -hmm. tell me then, how do you structure your days? Like, what is your zone of genius that you get to focus on in on all the time?
1: Well. You know, the theme that runs through my entire working life is that I'm a teacher, right? That's not just what I did for a job. That's like who I am in the world. Um, And part of, of course, being a teacher is being a voracious learner. And so I get to structure my time in such a way that I'm oscillating between learning cool shit and teaching and learning and teaching and learning and teaching and, you know, for people who love to learn, um, you know, the possibilities are endless as to what you can learn, right? Um, I always have a community of people that um, are excited about learning from me. I, In my retirement, I don't have to charge for that. Um, so I can teach whatever I want, whenever I want, on whatever platform that I want. And, you know, I think it's also the case that just even the simple pleasures, right? Like reading at a slow pace, <laughs> writing yes. at a slow pace, um, learning to, for me, what was so challenging um, was always having to push myself to read very quickly because I was reading for something, um, push myself to write quickly because I'm writing for a deadline, right? Um all of the things that i was always very goal-oriented about i get to be process-oriented about and you know it's quite again it's just super simple pleasure to be able to read slowly um, to be able to write slowly uh to be able to uh teach without the constraints of an entire institutional mechanism around that teaching so you know last year uh In December, I decided to teach a class, and um, I thought there would be maybe, I don't know, 50 people or something, and I just decided I would do this free class and teach it on Facebook, and um, 1,250 people showed up, and so I taught a five-week class to (laughs) this huge group of people, and it was wild and um, also just really fun. And part of what I think retirement has done for me is it's returned the joy and the pleasure of doing things that I'm really you know uniquely designed to do um and to just enjoy them without the constraint
0: of the exchange of money. Oh, my God, that sounds so good, okay, so will you talk about what that class was about or what your classes have generally been about? Um, sure. yeah. Yeah. So, uh,
1: my husband and I, um, ever since 2006, uh, spend our December, um, we, you know, we started doing it because, um, We quit Christmas and we just couldn't stand all of the overconsumption and expectation and everyone's perpetual disappointment at us. So uh, one year we said we quit Christmas, uh, we went to Mexico and uh, we decided that uh, we would add up what we usually spent doing things we don't really enjoy over the holidays and to see how long we could travel um, on that same amount of money. So we ended up spending a month in Mexico. and once we were there, oh my gosh, once we were there, we were so drunk with freedom. We were like, wait a minute, we could actually do something, <laughs> make our own choice about how we want to spend our time. What else could we do, right? So uh, we spent that month uh, going through this reflective process, um, really taking a step back, looking at our lives, um, really examining our relationships, our life purpose, Um our growth, our health, um, and really asking ourselves what it means to construct a meaningful life. And uh, we literally spent a month doing that, and we used that as a basis for creating our goals for the next year. And ever since we started doing that, we do it every year. Um, We take this annual pause. We call it a clarity retreat to get clear on who we are and what we want out of our life. And so uh, I had a number of people saying, look, I'm not going to Mexico for a month, but um, could you just break down what the steps are in this retreat process uh, so I (laughs) can do it on my own? So that's when I decided, oh, well, I'll teach the class because a lot of people ask me, well, how did you do this? And how did you do that? Um, How did you make these choices in your life? How did you get to where you are? And the real answer is that, um, you know, I take a step back and really look at my life on an annual basis. And. I create goals that are grounded in my own definition of success and not the definition of success um that I was socialized into that was really making
0: me miserable. Hmm. Mm, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so your definition of success now is what? Uh well, my definition of success
1: now is really about um living my purpose right? Like, I feel Mm -hmm. like if I think about why I'm here, um, if I think about what my very unique gifts and talents are, uh, if I think about what I do um, really well, uh, I'm pretty clear what that is. Like, I help people live their full potential, um, and I do so with a tremendous amount of joy. And you know what? That is the organizing principle around which I structure My daily life. And, you know, I have to hold and keep in balance a broader vision because I have, you know, relationships in my life. I uh, certainly have to manage money. I certainly build in various mechanisms of growth and I have to um, continue to develop my physical, spiritual, emotional health, right? So, I certainly have a broader vision that encompasses all of those things, but, you know, the thing that really brings me joy is helping other people live their full potential, and, you know, structuring my time around that is amazing, and whether that's through philanthropy, whether that's through teaching, whether that's um, through a variety of mentoring that I do, uh, it all is really pointed in a direction, and a direction that um, is incredibly energizing.
0: Okay, And so when you've sort of traced um, back what your life purpose has been, you've at least this is what I'm gathering from the conversation yeah. so far. It was always that. And is that the thing that led you to being an academic and a professor and a teacher, and then it led you into faculty development and now led you to this place you are in retirement? Is that the the sort of theme that's always run through? Yeah, you know, I
1: wouldn't have articulated it that way in my 20s, (laughs) but, you know, in my 20s, I would have said, I just want to help people, Uh, but I wouldn't have been clear how that was, although I definitely knew when I was an undergrad that I I was a teacher, right? Um, I was elementary ed uh, as a major And then I had experience in the classroom and I realized that um, children um, were not my jam and that teaching children was not a good fit for me. So uh, I was clear even at the time, I am a teacher, but this isn't the developmental moment that I'm particularly interested in or that I'm Mm -hmm. effective in. (laughs) So uh, I ended up shifting um, because I had a mentor, um, I had a mentor who was the first African-American female professor, um, I had ever experienced, uh, in my undergraduate years. It took until my fourth year of college. Um, but all of a sudden it seemed possible that I could teach at uh, college level instead of imagining that being a teacher meant that you teach elementary school or middle school or high school. So. Uh once I saw what was possible, uh, I made a pivot because I really wanted to teach in a college classroom. And I mentioned that because, um, you know, I think that might be different than why other people get a PhD, because of course a PhD is a d- degree in research. Um, I actually got a PhD so that I could teach in a college classroom. Um, I went through all of the research training, not because I wanted to be a world-class researcher. Um, I just wanted to teach college students. (laughs) And so um, Mm -hmm. you can already see the collision course ahead of me, right? Um, Because uh, I kept wondering as I went through grad school, like, what are we actually going to talk about teaching? (laughs) Are we going to learn how to teach? Uh, When are we, um, when are we? going to actually, like, is this really all going to be about research? And of course it was. Um, And once I started, uh, once I got a tenure track job, I bounced around to a couple different types of institutions, which is a little bit unusual. My uh, My first tenure track job was at a community college, because I thought, well, I really just want to teach. So let me go and get a job that is, you know, I had a 5-5 load. Um, what I realized is that um, I love teaching, but not a 5-5 load. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. too much. <laughs> but then I uh, taught at a liberal arts college, and then um, a comprehensive, and then a research intensive. Um, and I ended up getting tenure at a research intensive, but um, it always was a problematic fit because what I valued the most, which was teaching and advising and mentoring, um, was not what my institution valued. So the reward structure was entirely set up around uh, research and what I was passionate about was teaching. And it's funny um, for me uh, research was the tax I paid to teach um, a 2 2 load because I felt like I wow. was. Wow. Yeah, it's, which is like the opposite of what most people say. Um, but mostly I just realized like I'm a really great teacher when I teach um, a couple classes a semester, not a 5 5, not a 4 4, but if I teach a 2 2 load, it's really optimal that's one of my best teaching.
0: What about this whole retirement thing? You said that getting into conversations with people around retirement always feels a little, I don't know if heavy is the word, but but weird.
1: Yeah. Because people have this mental image of retirement, um, that isn't usually positive at all. Um, Usually, uh, I don't want to be dramatic, but I think lots of people just see it as the bridge to death, right? (laughs) They leave a job, um, there's just, you know, they leave it and um, they play some golf or do some things and then they just, you know, there's nothing left, right? Which assumes that uh, our professional identities and our work are our life, so that when you retire from that work, you have no life left. Right. There's nothing left to your identity, significance, um, contribution to the world, legacy, et cetera. And, you know, I think those um, ideas and also, let's be honest, um, for many people, uh, you know, I was planning for my retirement uh, when I was in my 20s. Um, oh, OK. And, yeah. This was an 18 year process of uh, really intense process of becoming financially independent um, with a plan to retire early. So, um, you know, most people haven't thought about it at all. So the financial piece of it seems so outrageously unattainable, if you've never thought about it, that um, it often triggers a whole bunch of, oh, Um, I can't even allow myself to think about this because I'll never be able to do it financially. So I think there's just so many different um, layers of negative assumption and difficult conversation around retirement that people don't want to (laughs) have. I'm always really hesitant to say how awesome it is.
0: (laughs) I, 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 okay, so then this leads me to the question I was Mm -hmm. going to ask because it really is a good segue. Like, okay, so you're in your 20s and you're like, I want to help people and I also, you know, want to retire early. And I know that um, I want to teach. So you go to a community college and then you jump around to different institutions. You end up getting tenure. um, And then after tenure, you leave you start this, uh, center, like I, I, this organization, like I'm just, um, I'm, uh, what is it mm, baffled by how <laughs> unique and how, uh, open you are to changing things up. Um, and, and it sounds like you've always been that way. It, it, it tell me where I'm wrong. Well, um,
1: I think it's, I'm not afraid of change because I, I have had to make changes in my life that have helped me to see that change doesn't have to be awful, that change can actually be an evolution of yourself. And... I feel a pretty intense internal imperative to continually evolve. And so um, when I'm doing something, even if it's something that I really thought I wanted and I love and I loved for a long time, when it no longer fits, um, I don't feel I don't feel like I have to stay in it, right? And it's not to say that I'd, I haven't gotten stuck at different points of my life. I have definitely gotten stuck. Leaving the academy um, really took me several years. Um, so it was a slow evolution, a slow change. But I, I just feel like I, I feel committed enough to the vision of what I want in my life, of clarity about what's, what a meaningful life looks like for me that I don't feel overly attached to particular roles or identities, if that makes sense.
0: Oh, it totally makes sense. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's probably the most rational thing I've ever heard when we really t- when we talk about career. And so I wonder, you mentioned leaving the academy, Like, what was going on that made that process harder than maybe some of the other stuff you've been through?
1: Well, what made it harder was, um, you know, I didn't grow up with money, so my entire childhood socialization was around security, right? Safety and security. And the idea of having a guaranteed job for life, and I was making a six-figure salary, so a a well-paying guaranteed job for life, um, that, you know, leaving that with my... Childhood socialization was a big deal. (laughs) That was not. um, And, you know, that was a huge, huge, huge um, decision because it represented um, so much safety and security, not just for myself, but um, for my family. So uh, that was one element of it. But it was also the case that because I had tenure, because I had what felt to me like the safety and security, I worked really hard to try to make my institution value what I valued. (laughs) So I spent several years banging my head against a ball, trying to create something that would allow me to do what I love within the context of that tenured position. So, um, to be concrete, um, I love, uh, I, you know, if you can imagine, it's not a big leap. I love helping people um, really fulfill their highest potential. So, I loved helping uh, tenure track faculty, um really develop explosive research productivity, really figure out how to navigate the space um, in a way that was optimal for them. So I started a mentoring program on my campus uh, for underrepresented faculty because, um, you know, it was definitely, we had a revolving door, especially for scholars of color. And honestly, my heart broke every time I saw a really new, fresh, vital person be hired. And within a few years, um, they just look like the light had gone out right uh, behind their eyes. So mm-hmm. um, I kept seeing people's just getting, you know, just their souls getting crushed in the process. Um, it just didn't look like a really, you know, I, I knew how brilliant people were and I wanted to help them really navigate the space. Um, and I had learned a lot by learning how to navigate it myself. So I wanted to share Um, So I built this program for underrepresented faculty and I poured my blood, sweat and tears into it because I thought to myself, you know, this could work for me if I can carve out um, a way to do my thing and be in my zone of genius that is also helpful to the institution. Like it's going to help us retain people. It's going to help us recruit people. Um, It's going to help us to diversify the faculty here on our campus. Um, And the program was super successful. Um, I think I invested like several years into it. Um, But then it became so successful that uh, my provost um, decided to make it a permanent program. And I can remember getting called into the office and congratulated for creating such a wonderful program and also told that, of course, I could understand they had to appoint someone else to run it. Um, despite the fact I had created it, <laughs> um, they needed an mm. el- they needed an elder statesman, you know, somebody uh-huh. who uh, could be taken seriously across campus. And so they had chosen um, this dude in the dental school who had never even participated in the program, but apparently that was going to be a better choice than me as the person who created it. And so wow. I had this moment of just being completely devastated that, You know it was one thing to be thrown under the bus um and have somebody else um after you've invested all your blood sweat and tears um be appointed at the moment that there was a budget and a title and course releases and blah 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 that was one thing but i think i was devastated because i was really engaged in this larger project of trying to figure out how i could be okay with the job (laughs) how I could Mm. carve out a space, how I could help my institution to see that, like it's really valuable to um, support and mentor faculty in a way that um, is mutually beneficial. And that just wasn't gonna happen. And I literally did not know how I could stay um, in that space without doing that work because that work Wasn't just something I enjoyed. Like, I can't not do that (laughs) because it's just part of who I am. So I think it took a long time because, um, let's be honest, I was, um, I really wanted because of my socialization around security um, and safety, I wanted so desperately to make my position work. And I really, really tried. And when it didn't work, um, it became very clear, it's never going to work. And then I had to start to um, experiment with um, what it would be like to leave.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking about something Martha Beck says, which is like, we once we kind of know our purpose, the first thing we do is search for ways to find a way to do it in the safest way possible. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what you did. And, and just... I'm only laughing
1: because it's so true, and that's such a succinct way to put it. But also because, like literally, I would n- I would have been so happy, all I wanted in the whole world. Was to run this small program with this small budget and this um, small role. I would have, if 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 that had been allowed to happen, I never would have left. And if I never would wow. have left, I never would have created NCFDD. Um, I never would have um, been able to serve, uh, you know, one hundred and twenty-five thousand faculty instead of the eighty on my campus. Um, I just, you know, I always think, thank goodness that um, I got thrown under the bus. At the time, I felt like I was being fired from that job, um, but I was really being freed, right?
0: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I I
1: always see um, the person who delivered that news as really an angel in my life because Mm. um, I would not have left. I would not have left that safety if I was not, um, if that door to my doing what I wanted hadn't been closed in my face.
0: Wow. Okay. So take us through, walk us through what happened then. I mean, you go through what, what kind of a recovery process did it, it, what what did your recovery process look like? And then at what point did you say to yourself, I think I'm going to try something of my own. I think I'm going to start something. Like how did all of that play out?
1: Well, um, I was devastated, moped around, um, and ate a lot of carbs for about six months. (laughs) um, It was not, um, there was no quick bounce back. Um, I felt in my soul devastated, but I didn't know why. And it was very difficult to, um, it was just very difficult to process. But at a certain point, um, I just realized I, like, I, I literally can't not do this. So uh, I wrote, uh, while I was uh, healing, I wrote a book, um, I co-wrote a book, um, The Black Academic's Guide to Winning Tenure Without Losing Your Soul, um, which was um, really kind of pulling out a lot of the, uh, a lot of what I had learned from running the program. Um, once the book came out, I started to get invited to do, uh, talks on campuses and workshops. Um, I started, a—I think I started a online forum. Um, this was a long time ago. So I think it was like a forum. That was like the big thing. I started an online <laughs> forum for, uh, scholars of color. I was facilitating that um, conversation online. And, you know, I started uh, sending out, I mean, it's, it's funny because it just, it felt like a really natural way to help people be on my campus. Um, so in my mind, I thought, well, um, I can't help people. I'm not, I mean, this has been cut off for me to help people on my campus. So how can I help people beyond my campus so i was doing all these things and all these experiments but at one point i started writing this little weekly email um, called the monday motivator and (laughs) i would send it to all my mentees because um, i kept saying the same things over and over again so the things that i frequently repeated i just put in this monday motivator and my mentees would share it with other people and pretty soon i had a list um probably around 800 to 1000 people. And, you know, it was a good experiment and that it was showing me that people were hungry for the kind of uh, information that I was putting out. Because um, I was really trying to help people navigate the space um, and really understand power dynamics, understand the kind of skills that you need, uh, if you're underrepresented, Um And also about becoming really productive in your research and writing. So I started to build that list. Um, And then at a certain point, um, I think I had told my husband that I hated my job and I was miserable one too many times. (laughs) And he, you know, uh, was really pushing me um, to leave and, uh, my husband had started his own business at that point, And I had seen what it looked like uh, for somebody to leave a large organization and start their own thing. And what I observed for him was that, um, he went from working 80 hours a week and being very unhappy, um, to doing his own thing where he was working significantly fewer hours and making a lot more money. So it seemed possible to me to leave. Um, I had been doing all these little experiments. So I knew there was a market or people who wanted the information. And honestly, um, you know, I think the biggest thing was that I had this mental shift, which, you know, my husband asked me this question, like, what would it what would make it okay for you to leave? And I had to sit with that question for a long time. Like what would make it okay for me to walk away from guaranteed income for the rest of my career. And let's be honest, um, I left when I was about 35. So, you know, we're talking about 30 (laughs) years of additional conservatively of additional salary. I had estimated, um, I'd be walking away from about $3 million. So, what would make it okay for me to do that? And I decided that there are some financial metrics that would make it okay. But more than anything, I just wanted to be able to know how I could replace my salary and benefits. And um, I started to get very playful about figuring that out. And what I realized, I can remember kind of this light bulb moment um, of thinking how many workshops would I need to do in a year? in order to replace my salary. And at what I was charging, it was it added up to about two workshops a month. And all of a sudden the light bulb went on. If I could book two workshops a month, I would never have to go to another fucking faculty meeting again. <laughs>
0: and uh, hey, all of a sudden, man.
1: I got real interested in marketing and advertising.
0: <laughs> right?
1: Yes. Because then all of a sudden it was like, oh, this is my bridge to freedom. And you know what? It wasn't that much, um, it wasn't long after that, that I realized, okay, I have booked out enough, um, uh, business for the next year, um, to equal my salary and benefits. And of course, uh, the year after I left, I far exceeded my salary and benefits and what I generated.
0: Wow. I just love that story. Um, Yeah, and I think I've wondered about that story for a long, long time. (laughs) (laughs) Is that creepy to you? I guess a lot of uh, people think about you like that.
1: (laughs) That is the most common question I get. Mm. Mm. Okay. It's also the most common question I ask. Mm. What would make it okay for you to leave? And I ask it because it is really different for different people. Because for me, um, everything was so rooted in financial security. Um, That was what would make it safe for me. I think the answer is different um, for different people based on what's keeping them in the job. Yeah.
0: Yeah and so you are just giving these workshops you are exceeding sort of your projected income and at what point do you start to think about this organization in in a in a in the way it is now and sort of larger I don't know the, a structure um, that is more than just sort of the solopreneur thing that you're doing. Yeah, well,
1: it all goes back to um, it all goes back to that purpose. Like I was giving workshops and it was great, and I'm a teacher, so I love to teach, and it was wonderful to, um, in some ways, it was I had created my dream job. I get to travel to different campuses. Um, my students are faculty, right? Um, it's not required, so they, the people who show up really want to learn, and Mm. um, you can do a lot in a one-day workshop, right? But what was really clear to me, um, as much as I was enjoying it, and there was certainly a positive impact, um, I was really after something bigger. Like, I didn't really just want people to, like, you know, track their time and, um, you know, Uh, manage projects better and write every day. Like that really, that wasn't what Mm -hmm. I was really after. Um, I really wanted to help people um, make deeply transformational changes in their relationship to work and um, to really locate their agency and use it in ways that enable their work to be a good fit for how they want to live their life. And you can't do that in a day, right? And so right. I kept feeling, I enjoyed giving the workshops, but I felt that I was not able to provide a transformational experience. It was certainly informative. It was certainly motivating. It might've been inspiring, but it wasn't transformative. And to me, the way that um, I had made really big, hard, deep transformational Changes in the past was by um, going through a process, um, going through a process in a community. And so at a certain point, I thought, well, what would it actually take for somebody to um, become more productive and have better work life balance? Because the magic is the two of those things together. So uh, I ended up designing a 12 week program. Um, which evolved into our faculty success program, and really figuring out um, what could I do with a group of people over a 12-week period um, to challenge them to experiment with new behavior, to really track their uh, the outcomes, but also their feelings about the outcomes, and that would really kind of rip them open <laughs> in order to uh, get at what is under the hood and really um keeping them from operating at their highest potential so all of that is to say i loved just the workshops and that would have been a great solopreneur business but i felt dissatisfied with the level of transformation that i could provide for people and the experience i could provide and i knew i could do something better so developing that program um, i knew i could do something better the perennial entrepreneurial question is, and who's going to pay for it? Right. Because right. if I had imagined a business where individual faculty pay for an in depth 12 week um, mentoring program, I would not have a business. <laughs>
0: because right.
1: Right. That's just not going to happen. So I had to figure out and how. Is it possible instead of being um, a B2C or business to consumer business, how would this look as business to business? How would this look for my client, the person who pays me, to be the institution instead of the faculty member? I'm going to serve the faculty member, but I need to figure out who's going to pay for this. And so it was really wanting to provide that deeper experience. But having to figure out who would pay for it, that's what changed the business from being just about speaking to being about how do I engage with universities so that um, they would provide me with the extraordinary honor and privilege of training their faculty. And that was really scary. That part of it was scary.
0: Will you talk about what was so scary about that part? Well, who am I? Right. I mean, Mm, the reality is, um,
1: you know, I picked this big, audacious, long name (laughs) because uh, the National Center for Faculty Development and Diversity, like it (laughs) conjures up like a thing, right? Like a building and people and things happening. And the reality Mm -hmm. is um, the first two years, the National Center for Faculty Development and Diversity was me sitting in my recliner with my laptop. Right. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. It literally was a website and a person sitting in front of her computer. Um, So, you know, there had to be this blossoming of, I had to become um, the business that I was projecting, right? I had to become the leader Mm -hmm. of a business that I wanted to exist in the world that was large enough that it could actually be in partnership with longstanding, change-resistant institutions and which, you know, I was really getting into partnership with universities, not with individual people. And so all the usual things come up, well, who am I? Um, Well, I'm this girl sitting in her recliner (laughs) 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 in front of her laptop. Uh, Who am I to? you know, try to get these high-level partnerships. Who am I? I felt very confident about serving faculty because I had started running beta versions of this program. Um, The first time I even said, hey, uh, to my email list, I'm thinking about running this program. Would anybody be interested? Um, I had over 400 people in 24 hours say, this is exactly Mm. what I want. When does it start? How much does it cost? right? Mm. So I was clear that there was a need and a desire for what I had to provide. It was just figuring out what, who was going to pay for it and how I was going to manage those relationships. And that required me to grow myself into that Mm -hmm. so that I could elevate the company and the organization to be
0: that entity. I have, I I think about this a lot and, um, you know, in, in my own experience of just kind of, you have to confront your own shit to yeah. be able to be who, like you said, you want to be and, and to grow into, to this thing that, that you're projecting. And so what kind of, um, what kind of stuff did you have to confront? Um, it, like you said, the fear of, well, who am I? It w- was a big one. And I, I wonder if there's anything else because that's a pretty big one. Yeah. Um, and it, like, how, how did you process that so that you could say, yes, indeed, I am the one who's going to do this or I am going to make this happen?
1: Well, honestly, I... I basically followed my own advice, which is um, when you're transitioning from one role to another, um, you put yourself in a pack of people who already are that thing you want to become, because the pack Mm. will socialize you, right? And Mm -hmm. for me, it wasn't even just about confronting my own stuff. The reality is that what makes you successful as an academic and what makes you successful as an entrepreneur are um, the two opposite ends of whatever spectrum you can imagine. (laughs)
0: Mm. Oh my God, you have to say more.
1: I not only had to learn a a whole bunch of different skills, but I had to learn some really radically different mindsets and ways Mm -hmm. of being, right? Whether it was my relationship to time, right? Um, because as an academic, uh, we tend to move slow. We're very thoughtful about decision making. We can take an entire year to form a committee and do a study and have conversations to make a recommendation around action. <laughs> and so um, that's an orientation to time that's very different um, than entrepreneurs, which is You gotta do things quickly on insufficient information, make a lot of guesses. And the goal is to fail as fast as possible because by failing, you will get more information that you need and you pivot. All of the slow, deliberate decision-making as an academic is to avoid failure, right? So again, whether it's orientation to time, whether it's relationship to failure, whether it's um, how you think about sales, uh, whether it's um, about how you engage in self-promotion, all these sorts of things, being an academic and being an entrepreneur are at the opposite ends of the spectrum. And so I had to learn new skills, new ways of being, new mindsets. And the most effective way I have found to make changes and evolutions in my life is to get myself in a pack and let the pack work on me. Um, and so I was in a, uh, I was part of a group of a hundred women entrepreneurs. Um, I also uh, checked myself into an incubator um, at one point. Um, I just mm-hmm. kept putting myself in in situations where um, I'm the least accomplished person, I'm the least along, and everyone who I'm surrounded by has already made that shift that I want to make. They already understand themselves as an entrepreneur. They already understand themselves as creating um, a uh, formalized organization, right? They already understand themselves as selling, as doing business with other businesses or doing partnerships with organizations. Like that's just normal for them. So if I get myself in a group of people where what's normal for them is not normal for me, all my stuff is going to come up and all my stuff is going to come up in a way that I have to sort it out in the environment of people who already have sorted it out. And I'm not saying that that's always pretty, <laughs>
0: but... Oh
1: God, no, no. <laughs> but being around, being in a large group of uh, entrepreneurs who are also almost entirely women. Um, and also, who were uh, had built or were building um, really companies, mission-based companies. So I could see what I wanted to become. I could be surrounded by it, and that's what helped me to quickly make those types of adjustments. And you know, just to acknowledge also my own privilege, um, I had uh, I was my husband's an entrepreneur. My husband had started uh, his own successful company. Um, and he was a management consultant. So I had in-house um, the benefit of a strategic partner. Um, and certainly everyone doesn't have that.
0: Okay, I love everything you just said. And um, I guess the, the two things I just kind of want to point out to listeners is um, the one, you know, put yourself in a pack of people who are doing things that are normal to them, but not yet normal to you. (laughs) And the other thing is that question you said that you always ask, um, what would make it okay for you to leave? Um, And I'm wondering what other advice do you have for people who, because I got to say, I talk to a lot of PhDs Not all of them are, you know, have um, a solid academic career, but many of them do. And they're afraid to leave. Um, And they don't, they want to leave. And they have these grand ideas um, about, you know, doing consulting work or coaching work or, you know, they want to do creative writing. Um, They want to do this kind of stuff. And um, they're feeling like, They just can't, like, and and they're sort of dying inside, right? And so what is your advice to people who know deep in their soul they want to leave, but they just can't figure out how?
1: Yeah, so I think the first part is you have to recognize that um, your fear and your not knowing um, is normal, right? Right. Um, I think I also have a lot of these conversations and they're often in very hushed tones, right? Um, I can remember for myself, uh, one of the first conversations I had about leaving, um, I had with Megan McIntosh, who was one of my mentors, uh, who was an academic who had left. And I literally went out to my car in the parking lot and had the phone call and I was whispering to her. (laughs)
0: Uh, yes. Yes. This is real.
1: Yeah. So I just want to acknowledge that um, that's not just you, right? That's not just anybody listening who, um, for me, I felt like I was leaving a cult, right? Because every time I even broached the subject, people were like um, aghast. Uh, people were <laughs> like, you know, nobody leaves. Nobody ever leaves. Nobody ever leaves. (laughs) position. And if you leave, you can never come back. And like Uh, people said things that I don't think they realized that sounded like they were in a cult, but did in fact (laughs) sound that way. So I just want to normalize that like, here's the deal. We shouldn't, we don't want to be having conversations about leaving with people whose mindset is they've never left and they never will leave right? Because that's a recipe mm-hmm. for a very unpleasant conversation. I think what we want to be doing is talking to people who, I mean, really systematically treating it like a project. Um, I can remember um, mapping out all the people who were doing uh, something similar to what I wanted to do and who had left academia. The reason I contacted Megan was because um She had left, Uh, she had been a tenured faculty member, she had been in faculty development and she had started her own company and she seemed really happy and successful doing it. So I went and just mapped out a whole bunch of people who were doing the thing I wanted to do in a way that I aspired to do it. And then I just started asking them for an informational conversation, right? Um, I treated it as a data collection opportunity. And by doing that, I could really not only have conversations that started to make it real for me. I'm talking to people who have left and I'm thinking about leaving. I'm choosing people who are successful. I'm not talking to people who left and are miserable. So I'm starting to piece together and figure out what it looks like to have this different kind of work situation. And every time I'm talking to someone, I'm noticing my own energy <laughs> because mm-hmm. um, every time I talked to someone who had left, um, there was a part of my, part of my, you know, I don't want to be dramatic, but I felt my soul lift every time I talked to someone. was on the other side. (laughs) and Mm. I felt this spark of energy. I felt like, oh my gosh, this could be possible for me. I got excited. I lost track of time. I got into a flow state just talking about it, right? And for me, those are all little clues um, that this is a direction I want to be heading. So by the time, I, I just concretely wanna say, it's great if you can treat it like a real project. Um, literally mapping out 10 to 12 people that you could have conversations with and just asking for those conversations. Um, a lot of times we decide, uh, we decide for people whether they're gonna talk to us or not by telling ourselves the story that you know they're too busy Or who am I to contact this person or they're never going to talk to me. Um, I don't want to impose. All of those are ways of limiting ourselves. Um, We want to identify who we want to talk to. We want to ask. And they're all grown-ups. If they don't have time, they'll say so. Our job is to ask. Um, They can decide whether they have the time or not. So I think first and foremost, it's really about making a project of figuring out what your options are, right? Um, you might be amazed by who will
0: speak to you <laughs> And so- uh, can I just say today I have <laughs> been amazed that Ann Rockamore is speaking to me <laughs> and I, I think my message to you was I know I'm shooting for the stars here but do you think you might come on my podcast <laughs> and here we are who knew
1: and I remember reading the email and I was like oh girl please of course <laughs>
0: For people to hear, I'm so glad you just said that. It's so good for me to hear, too. Yes. Yes.
1: I thought, oh, I'm so excited. This will be awesome. So, yeah, I mean, ask, see what happens. The worst case scenario is people ignore you or they say no, and you don't lose anything by that, right? And um, I think what this does is it enables you to broaden out what you think is possible and how things actually work, right? So um, I think a lot of times we get into this um, either or thinking, either I have my my faculty position or I jump out the window and try this totally different thing that I know nothing about, right? Um, you know, there's probably a whole bunch of other opportunities <laughs> in between those two yeah. things. But if we're stuck in that either or, it's hard to see what all those different opportunities are. And so once you start to figure out what the broad range of possibilities are, then you can start designing little experiments. And all I mean by that is how can you stick your toe in the water and see what something's like instead of just jumping head first into the deep end, right? So, Uh, I think a lot of people look at my career path and imagine one day I was a professor and then the next day I started NCFDD and then it was really successful. And there you go. That's not. Yeah. It must be nice to be her. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This was um, my leaving was many years in the process as I described. Um, But also even um, my sticking my toe in the water I tried a lot of different things to see how they would be. Um, At one point, I even, um, I thought, well, maybe the best way to help, for me to help people is um, maybe I should become a pastor. I even went to divinity school for (laughs) a summer. Wow. Wow. (laughs) And uh, it was an epic disaster, (laughs) That's a podcast for another day, but the point is, um, it was an epic disaster, but it was an experiment. I stuck my toe in the water um, because academics have a different set of responsibilities in the summer. Summer is a great time to stick your toe in the water. Um, I stuck my toe in the water. It was a disaster. I pulled my foot out of the water, right? I went and stuck my toe in a different spot. And again, if you treat it as a project, Um, It doesn't have to be this devastating failure. You went out and collected some data and the data told you this is not your jam. Pivot. Explore other possibilities. And in the experimenting, we keep getting closer and closer and closer to
0: what just feels right. Okay, so... That is excellent advice, and I know we're about out of time, but I do want to say I read a little piece of this experimenting thing that you wrote about in Inside Higher Ed in your column, and um, you had said something about circus about. <laughs> Can you talk about that? How do you hear about
1: that? So. Um, this makes more sense if you could see me i'm four foot ten um i'm this very small human Um, and i just kind of look like i was built for the circus um and so um (laughs) i uh i i basically had this story um and it was a story that uh was kind of my uh fantasy mechanism when i Hated my job as an academic. I would go around saying, Well, I'm just going to join the circus. <laughs> and I, I didn't think that it was, um, I wasn't thinking like something low end. I was thinking like Cirque du Soleil or something, right? Something real high end, something that required skill <laughs> and awesome outfits. Um, and I'm saying it and it sounds so ridiculous. It was exactly as ridiculous as it sounds. Okay. And so here I am, a middle-aged woman uh, telling people, you know, I I might just go join the circus. (laughs) uh, You know, again, um, I I think at one point my husband was like tired of me saying this and was like, you know, why don't you just go join the circus? (laughs) And I thought, you know, I'm going to go join the circus. And I realized that, you know, there are skills involved and you need training. And so Um, I decided to take a course in circus arts and, you know, it didn't really take more than a couple sessions for me to realize that the fantasy of me, um, even though I had, I was a gymnast in my past, um, the the idea of me flipping around in spandex, um, as a middle-aged woman was never going to happen, okay, um, ever, ever, under any circumstances, the ship had sailed. Okay. So, you know, again, it was just another one of those experiments. It's like, okay, I'm tired of you talking about this. Why don't you dip your toe in the water? And, you know, that may sound like a silly story, but really, you know, what's in there is like, what are the things that um, you keep fantasizing about that you're actually more committed to the fantasy as an escape mechanism than you are to this actually being a direction you want to take your life. Because sometimes those fantasies um, that we're more committed to the fantasy actually can keep us from dealing with the reality that we're really need to make a change. It's time for us to evolve. But if we keep playing <laughs> in something that isn't going to happen, um, that we don't even really want, but we just like saying it or we like thinking about it. Because um, I really liked thinking about what outfit I was going to wear in Cirque du I had it all, I have my whole act mapped out. At any rate, the point is, uh, that was actually keeping me from getting real about, I need to make change. I need to, um, get serious about what's happening in my life. And let's be honest, um, mine might've been uh, running away to the circus, but there's all kinds of ways that we numb ourselves, that we distract ourselves, that we keep ourselves engaged in something that is not what we need to be evolving into and actually truly desire just as an avoidance mechanism. And really, I think the beautiful thing about experiments is that we actually have to confront, am I just fantasizing or is this something I truly desire? And actually that level of discernment is so incredibly powerful because it ripples out to so many other areas of life, right? Because once you've confronted one avoidance, um, and distraction, uh, once you've eliminated one, um, and honestly, there's a huge amount of energy that comes to saying, I cross that off, not in this lifetime. Once you start doing that, um, all of a sudden you start looking around your life and realizing, boy, I'm really distracting myself with a lot of things. I'm numbing myself with a lot of things. I'm avoiding the real painful reality that it's time for me to change.
0: Um, the first time I really thought about numbing out um about my own numbing out was when I had read uh, Stephen Cope's book. Um it's called oh I'm terrible with the names of books, uh Yoga and the Search for True Self or something. Mm-hmm. And he talks all about the importance of turning into reality. Um yeah. and he says it over and over again in that book. And when I finished reading that book, and this is when I was very much in career crisis. Um, I just, uh, I I just remember telling myself over and over again, Danielle, what is reality? What is reality? And right now, if I turn around here in my office, I have this little um, sign that says, welcome to reality, (laughs) just like you say, to kind of keep yourself out of the abstract world and the numbing out world. And honestly, everything you just said, like, this is doable. So. Yes, you do have to acknowledge that you're afraid and, and you do have to, like you said, normalize the fear, but figuring out 10 to 12 people to talk to, you know, looking for, you know, a bunch of different opportunities. It's not just an either or thing, designing experiments, and then just getting closer and closer to what you want to do and paying attention to when you have sort of a soul lift like that. Feels very doable. Yeah. Um, it's not all going to happen in one day, but it's something you can work toward day by day by day. Yeah, it
1: really. Um, I mean, isn't that kind of how everything is? Which is, we we imagine it as this big unknowable mystical process, and really, it's just about breaking the big thing down into actual steps we can take, getting really concrete about it, and just getting into motion, because just starting to do it, the doing it attracts other things to you. Doing it, you know, those conversations, um, those conversations attract to you um, new connections, new resources, new ideas, but you have to be in motion in order for those things to happen. So I do think it's just about getting concrete. It's just about moving forward. It's just about experimenting um, and trusting that the right things will come to you.
0: So good. Carrie Ann, thank you so much for this awesome conversation. (laughs) I am so so grateful. Yeah, it was so good. And um, ah, just thank you for stepping into your purpose and making this something that is... um, that is always front and center for you because we're all learning from you. So, yeah, thank you. Well,
1: thank you for this podcast because um, it's one of those things that is demystifying uh, the transition process and the evolution process. And you know, I would have given anything to have this podcast. <laughs> <I was laughs> in the- When I was so deeply stuck, uh, this Uh would have been really just heaven sent. So I just want to appreciate and acknowledge you for not just figuring it out for yourself, but for actually um, doing that thing, which is this helped me and let my giving to other people um, be a support to them and also continue to heal myself.
0: Mm. That means so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Self-Compassionate Professor. Find me on LinkedIn at Danielle Delamar, on Twitter and Instagram at Danielle S.C. Prof, or schedule a free coaching consult at selfcompassionateprofessor.com. Be well.